Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. Uh, My guest today is Eli Wilner, one of the world's foremost framers of uh, important works of art that have come down to us through the centuries. He has worked with the White House, with uh, major museums, and uh, is uh, may well be the most celebrated framer there is in the world, as far as uh, I can tell. Work is beautiful, and I wanted to congratulate you and tell you uh, you're a lucky man. And I think uh, I have a hunch about this, that you got interested in this very early in your life in some way, or because it has to be some kind of talent that you have. Tell me about uh, where you were raised and uh, your, your education, and, uh, and then we'll press on from there. Sure. So um, I was born in Israel, uh, moved with my family to New York at the age of six, and met my great uncle for the first time, who was a prominent collector, Michael Zagaisky. And every painting he owned, he put in an antique frame. So my introduction to framing was very, very early. I was a precocious kid. I painted all the time. And when I gave him uh, my paintings as gifts, he would frame, he would have antique frames cut down or sized and put on my paintings. Then he hung them next to his Modigliani's and Chagall's and (laughs) Max Lieberman's, et cetera. So I, as a child, assumed that I was one of the great masters. I yeah. assembled a collection of books of Rembrandt, Goya, et cetera, and I envisioned the Eli Wilder book uh, to follow. <laughs> uh, I then received my education, my, my bachelor's at, at Brandeis University, and my master's in painting at Hunter College in New York. And lo and behold, uh, New York didn't think I was a great artist, and I needed to find a profession. Luckily, I remembered my passion for frames and how important they were in my life and found a uh, position at Shepherd Gallery. At the time, Shepherd, uh, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D Gallery was in um, on 84th and Madison in a wonderful old building. And I ran the framing department. Didn't have a clue what I was doing in terms of framing. How old were you at I this was, uh, Yeah, that's a good question. So I was 22. So I plunged into framing. Now I do have an interesting anecdote. At the age of 15, I worked at a frame shop in North Palm Beach, Florida, because we were living in Florida, my family was, for two days in the summer. And after cutting my hand by cutting glass, I swore I would never set foot in a frame shop again. So it's interesting how the things that you know for certain don't turn out that way. And so framing for me became my profession, my love, my inspiration, my all. And that was, so that was quite a while ago. I stayed with Shepard for five years. I had a, an, I had a gift for framing. 
and began from day one. How would you describe the this gift? What is that's the clue that I'm curious about? Yeah. So for me, the gift is I have a a photographic memory, and by visiting multiple museums, I began to notice that specific artists would use frames from a certain period in their work in different museum collections. So uh, Thomas Cole from 1828 would have the same frame at the Wadsworth Athenaeum as in the Boston Museum, as in the Metropolitan Museum. I began to see this pattern and I took photographs. At the time it was Polaroid, but I took lots of photos and assembled books and albums of what different artists used, whether it was Picasso or Rembrandt or whatever it was. And I used that as my Bible and I began to educate curators uh, as to what artists use. And I learned proportion, color, scale uh, by looking at what the artists chose for their own work through time. So my, my real education were the original painters and their choice of frames. I did not care, I didn't care for, and I ignored and hate what dealers put on for the most part, I went back to the source as to what the artist would have chosen. So that's always been my, um, you know, my direction. What um, what did you learn about different painters that specifically that uh, you could tell me about? Maybe one or two of them that. Yeah, to- well, we, we yeah we could we can start anywhere you want, any any century you want. But what I found that over hundreds and hundreds of years. Artists chose specifically the type of frame they wanted to show their paintings with. They did. They could not envision a painting without its frame. Uh, that's coming full circle. We can get to that later uh, with contemporary artists. But if you study anyone, and you know, it's, well, I'll ramble on. And, and Degas uh, designed his own frames. Whistler designed his own frames. Uh, Manet, Monet, all had a specific frame they liked at a specific time in their life. With American art, Winslow Homer designed his own frames. Frederick Church designed his own frames. Uh, Edward Hopper had a specific framer he liked. Uh, Picasso had a certain uh, desire for Dutch black frames. They all saw their work in a certain way. It was part of their creative process. It wasn't a separation where they thought the frame should be put on later. It was part of the artistic uh, development of the painting itself. Did their choices reflect in any way something from their own lives that they chose that that excited them from what you could see? Yes, I, th- I think a great example uh, are the pre-Raphaelites in England. So they traveled to Italy and they borrowed or interpreted Italian frames, both from uh, marble carved reliefs on the walls to frames that were used, tabernacle frames, et cetera, that were used in churches. And they then went back to England and and had their framers uh, interpret these through drawings to what they wanted to use. So Frederick Lord Layton, William Holman, Hunt, et cetera, had very specific frames that they loved because their work to them was inspired by the Renaissance. And so the frames, of course, should be as well. I think that's a, that's a really good example from what you just uh, asked. 
So with how and you were this was at that gallery on the Upper East Side. Is that when you began to uh, take photographs or before that? Yes. No, that was that was a time I had I had really no. I had one year of uh, internship as a painting restorer, but I had no reason to really look at frames outside of the frames that my great uncle had framed for me. And um, so uh, this job opening opened up. And I swaggered in and said I was, you know, a wonderful framer, although I only had two days of framing at the age of 15. But at 22, I was, you know, full of bullshit and uh, got the job that same day. And I was a 50% partner. And everything was going very well, except in 1980, beginning of 1983, art dealer friends of mine began to throw out antique frames so we were only dealing with reproductions never an antique frame and uh friends of mine would call me and say hey, you want to pick these up so i ran down picked them up for nothing there was a day in 1983 i think it was around april april 5th 6th that alexander gallery alex acevedo came to shepherd gallery and he bought a frame for me that he had given me the month before and at that moment my light bulb went out you know went on and he only paid me two hundred dollars i mean it wasn't a great sum of money but i understood that these uh quote-unquote worthless frames were valuable to alex and i said aha maybe there's a business model here unfortunately uh shepherd gallery owners didn't appreciate my instinct uh, even though I'm very good friends with, with Robert Cashy to this day, but he, they felt that I couldn't really sell an antique frame for more than a reproduction frame. It wasn't ethical because I found them for nothing. And I thought that was wrongheaded thinking and I gave notice. And by September 83, I was on my own and I had $6,000. I bought 300 frames worked out of my Upper East Side fifth floor apartment, and immediately uh, the business took off. New York Magazine, um, Tracy Poland came over and did an article in New York Best Bets, and there were limos uh, outside from that moment on. Tell me a little about your, your personal life, if you would, about um, uh, how, after that and how you, what you've uh, been up to have you done a lot of traveling and th things like that yeah so uh during my life right now i can actually speak backwards on my life I, I i always think i'm 20 but i'm not <laughs> um so yeah over the course of my life i have taken uh i think 25 cruises to any asia and antarctica etc and uh visited the caribbean over 20 times on separate vacations so i I have seen quite a bit of Europe, of course. I've been to uh, numerous museums. I missed Russia. That's the only country. Now it's going to be tough to do that one. That's the only country I really feel like uh, I missed a great, great collection. Maybe one day that'll be rectified. What is the, uh, I guess, the breakout, uh, uh, the breakout job that you can see from your career that uh, was it the White House or before that? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Oh, I love that. 
Yeah. Uh, till today, uh, there were there were two projects that stand out. So one is uh, the White House. Uh, when Clinton took office, there was a painting by Child Hassam of Rainy Day or Flag Day on Fifth Avenue. Sorry, not Rainy Day, Flag Day. I know the painting. And I framed that as a gift to the White House. And ever since that moment, uh, I've done another 27 projects for them. So that was very important for me because the White House has such a, obviously such a great ring to it. Uh, the next project that I did that may have even superseded that in terms of my career is framing Washington crossing the Delaware for the Metropolitan Museum, which happens to be the number one sought after painting to be looked at at the Met and also happens to be the largest painting at the Met. And we recreated uh, a frame that's 20 by 14 feet by looking at photographs that Matthew Brady took uh, in 1864 of this painting in its original frame designed by Leutze. The frame was lost when it was shipped to Texas with the painting and remained in Texas. And the painting was put in a very thin strip frame, which it sat in for a hundred years until Carrie Barrett, the uh, curator of the American Wing and then associate director, decided to make it her project to reframe it. And Kevin Avery, during his research about something else at the New York Historical Society, ran across the original photographs by Matthew Brady of this frame, which we then took two years to recreate. On my website, Morley Safer, uh, did a six-minute interview with me for a Good Morning show that he does. They did on Sundays. Unfortunately, he's not with us. And uh, you could see how the frame was created. Are you saying that the frames that you're putting on are the kinds, are the frames that would would have been done by the artists themselves, or, or are you only, talking only, only? I refuse to do anything else. So I've been arrogant that way, and I've made a few enemies, but I, I will not. I will not put anything on, and I never did, that I won't be proud of. Um, and my entire thesis is that the paintings should have frames that the artist would have been proud of. So, yeah, I'll never do anything else. Mm -mm. Well, that's that's an, an amazing uh, discovery. Um, what about the uh, when the, when the modern mu movement came into play in the, the post-war where... I guess uh, post Second World War and or somewhat earlier, and they were without frames. The, the, that so, so frames frames were still extremely important up till uh, let's say the abstract expressionist and yeah. then the minimalist, where the frames disappeared. So you don't see a frame on a Jackson Pollock, on a Barnett Newman, on a Clifford Still, et cetera, et cetera, um, and. They actually sometimes painted the edges uh, as part of their uh, creation, or they had the painting it was unstretched, and they stretched it with the paint right over the edges. You know, Pollock would have done that, and so a Roscoe, of course, you'd never see framed. So I've never framed those, except except small um, small works by these artists. Well, especially Pollock are collected. And co the collector that I worked with liked to put them in black Dutch frames. So we did that because I thought it looked great. And it was a dealer, Eugene Thaw, that did that with Pollock. And I thought, you know, if it's good enough for him, okay, we'll do that. 
What is uh, one of the worst framing that you ever saw on a painting that um, you were going to be removing and you knew that that's what you were doing, but that you were astounded to see someone put on a particular painting, if you ever what thought a, of that. What a lovely, what a what a lovely question. I've never uh, been given that question. So this happens repeatedly. It's not one singular painting. What happened was art dealers, in order to ingratiate themselves with collectors in the late 19th century and early 20th century, would put all their paintings, no matter where they came from, in French uh, reproduction frames because French paintings from the 18th century were the rage in New York, for example. So they put anything and everything in these frames. So it's in, in a way great for my career because I've had, you know, 40 years to undo that injustice. <laughs> but so it's a repeated, I was in a museum uh, two days ago and we're looking at reframing 20 to 30 paintings. And invariably they're all are in these French reproduction frames and no one has addressed it yet. So that's to my benefit. And I'm going to, you know, dress these paintings up the way that the artist would have enjoyed. Why do you think that that particular year of 1983, everyone had decided that the old frames had to go? Ah, <laughs> so there was an exhibit. I think the moment really came not so much that my, my pushing uh, collectors, the moment came in 1990 when the Metropolitan Museum did an exhibit in the Luce Center, which I actually sponsored, um, and of empty American frames with, with uh, labels on each one, oh. next to each one. And at the same time, the Lehman Wing did an exhibit on 17th century uh, frames. And the two coincided. And it was, a, it, whenever the Met does anything, every other museum pays attention. Whenever curators and directors pay attention, their patrons and collectors pay attention. And whenever the collectors and patrons pay attention, the art dealers pay attention. So everything changed, transformed that day. Why do you think they did that? Why they got the big, big, not some, I'm not sure they understood the difference visually, aesthetically. I'd like to think they did, but I'm not certain. But the Met said it was important. And again, when the Met says it's important, everyone takes it seriously. They're the, they're the Vatican. That's the Pope said it's important. You better pay attention if you're a Catholic. What's the a most uh, interesting museum in your mind that you've, that you've done work at that or anywhere in the world that you would come to mind if I ask you about it? Well, I'm going to talk about a small collection. Uh, Colby College, uh, funded by Peter and Paula Lunder, have reframed every painting in that collection with a frame that they gifted to Colby with one of my frames. So to me, that's the treasure trove of what my work has looks like on American paintings. So to me, it's a very special place. In terms of looking at frames um, on paintings where I really didn't even get involved with, I'm gonna give you another small institution. In Farmington, Connecticut, there's a small museum called the Hillstead, H-I-L-L-S-T-E-A-D. And this was, uh, the collection was built by a gentleman named Pope, who made his fortune in Ohio, moved here to Farmington, and took on uh, Mary Cassatt, became an advisor, 
Whistler was a friend, and the frames, interestingly enough, were create were done by Herman Dudley Murphy, the painter and Boston frame maker, who was one of the leading frame makers in his country at the turn of the century. So about 1910, he must have visited uh, Mr. Pope, and every painting, Monet, uh, they've got two Monet haystacks. They have Monet, they have Degas, they have Cassad, and everything is framed by Herman Dudley Murphy. So you have two conversations going here. One are these masterpieces, and I think if anyone has not seen the collection, they owe it to themselves to visit the Hillstead. And, but what I find enjoyable and wonderful is you see this great master framer interpreting how he would like to see these paintings framed. So believe me, these came in atrocious French reproduction frames of the time, and he decided they should look um, and they should look the way he envisioned it. And I wouldn't change a thing. It was a delightful surprise. There's nothing to change. I think the artist would have loved to see how their work is presented. And wow. I think some of them did, obviously. Yeah. Oh, well, it was sort of like if everyone had done that, you wouldn't have done anything. <laughs> I, would be out of, I would be out of work. So yeah. another interesting fact that, that you would enjoy is that in the history of collecting, you, uh, there's a notice that museums and collectors tended to change frames every 30 years. Why? And I think it's, it's generational, right? So every 30 years, someone else, you know, at that time, people didn't live that long. And so let's say they were in their 50s and passed away and the kids took over and to make, they didn't want to get rid of the paintings, but they sure want to get rid of daddy's frames. And they put on the latest and greatest uh, frames around. And so this, so all those other frames were tossed away, maybe not thrown away, put in the attics, put in the basement. Yeah. Um, that's how there are empty frames in the world. Why else would there be empty frames? Now I have chosen years ago, I'd say 20 years ago, not to sell antique frames. So if I sell an antique frame, it's by, mm, it's a special reason to do it because I don't like cutting them down. I think that's a travesty. What I do is make what I call replicas. My craftspeople, women and men, actually have the original frame next to them and they carve from it or they make castings of it, depending on what the original was made of. And so I'm able to quote unquote fake a frame better than anyone I've ever seen. These are good. You cannot tell which is old and which is new when I'm done with it. So we're very good at it. And that way I get to keep the collection and um, we're able to offer pricing that is more affordable than if someone uh, demanded an antique frame. Now, there are times when a client wants an antique period frame and they're willing to pay any amount of money for that. Then I step in and, and, and accept the, uh, the challenge. Well, uh, we've uh, gone through the uh, time limit we have for these uh, these podcasts, and uh, I have found this quite fascinating. And uh, I want to thank you for being on my podcast. And uh, uh, since I'm, I actually live quite nearby to you. Uh, maybe we'll get together sometime. I would Here. love that, Dan. Please tell me when, and I'm there. Okay, I'm on the Upper East Side as well uh, in uh, during a week. Yeah, you let you let me know. I would oh. love that. 
Thanks. We'll do it. Thanks. Thank for you, everyone. Thank you for setting this up and thank you for uh, such interesting questions. That was really challenging. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.